Our sermon text today comes from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 36, which is found in your pew Bible on page 820. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full from the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, Command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, it is so appropriate that as we begin this morning, and just having read a passage with two uh, amazing episodes of your son's power, and in both of them, he prays. It's so appropriate for us. Who are we not to pray? Jesus looks up to heaven and prays for your blessing on the bread that he breaks and feeds the crowds with, and he is on the mountain for hours praying before he comes to his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And so here we are, and there are weighty matters before us. Father, this is your word. On both sides of this pulpit, we want to handle it by faith and in faithfulness. And we are not strong enough or good enough to do either of those things on our own. And so we pray for your Spirit's blessing and power. 
there are saints who are perplexed and burdened and weighed down and saddened and grieving in need of guidance. You must give it to them. There are saints who are walking in a way that is contrary to their profession as Christians. You need to pull them back. And there are lost people with us. People who haven't yet been reconciled to you. And they need the gift of new life and eyes to be given them to see their need as it really is and your answer for their need in the Lord Jesus. And only you can do this. So we ask you to do it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, if you ever, by the way, this is, I just think this is important. It's an important thing, aspect of our passage. And, uh, and uh, I, I'm not going to talk about it this morning, except just right now. Uh, if you think that you can lead a prayerless life, you're wrong. Uh, prayerlessness is not uh, anything else except pride in some kind of religious self-pity mode. Jesus Christ, who was God incarnate, didn't do anything without praying. He doesn't say, got this, got the loaves, no problem, my power, I can just touch these loaves. He looks up to heaven. He doesn't say, I, I can find the disciples, uh, I, I can go through all of this, I can hear about my danger from Herod, uh, I can engage in a full day of ministry, I don't need to go to my father to be replenished. No, he has to spend hours in prayer. What are we doing <laughs> When we, when we actually kind of justify our prayerlessness, what we're doing is not what Jesus teaches us to do. So let that be said at the beginning. Boy, I should do a whole sermon just on prayer from those passages. But it's very interesting, isn't it, how different Jesus is. So this morning we're back in these uh, two episodes uh, that are miracle stories. They're two of uh, our Lord's most well-known miracles uh, the feeding of the 5,000, and then his uh, walking on the Sea of Galilee to meet his disciples in the boat in the midst of the wind. And we saw last week that these are miracle stories, but they're really what they are is ministry stories. They're episodes, that Je they're like training missions that Jesus uh, brings his disciples through. And this is why they're so relevant to us. He, they're like training missions that Jesus brings his disciples through, and by them, he means to equip them for ministry. There are things about him and his ministry for them, and there are things about his ministry, what would be his ministry through them, that he teaches them through these episodes. And, and by that a token, these are also training missions for us. So last week, we looked at uh, what we see about Jesus' ministry for us uh, from these passages. And we saw that Jesus' ministry for us is the ministry of a man for men and God for men. And this week, what I want to look at is what these, passages, what these uh, two episodes have to 
uh, teach us about Jesus's ministry through us. I mean, the gospel is amazing. If all we ever did was think about Jesus's ministry for us, that wonder could consume all of our thinking and feeling forever. But the wonders of the gospel don't stop with Jesus's ministry for us. They're inseparably united to Jesus's ministry through us. God, think about it, friends. God doesn't need any of us to get his work done. And yet he involves us in the most important thing going on in the universe, which is the expansion of his kingdom, what those wonderful young people were doing in Harlan. So it's an amazing privilege that Jesus gives us to be used by him. And there are three things about Jesus's ministry through us that I want to highlight from our passage this morning. Jesus's call to the ministry, his compassion, and then his provision. His call, his compassion, and his provision. So let's look first at Jesus's call to the ministry and let, from our passage, and let's, let's just put the thesis on the table right now, and it's this, that Jesus Christ calls every one of his people into the ministry. Every Christian has been called by Jesus Christ into the ministry. If you're a Christian, you have been called already by Jesus Christ into the ministry. Those two things, it's not like you become a Christian and then later on you figure out that there's a ministry for you. What, what Jesus is showing us in this passage is that to be a Christian is to be called into the ministry. So look with me, think about the feeding of the 5,000, and particularly verse 16. It's an amazing story if you think about the sequence, because they, uh, after Jesus gets the news about John uh, the Baptist's execution, he goes with his disciples in a boat to a desolate place, but the townspeople have found out, and they have come on foot to meet him, so he thinks that uh, he's going to, or the disciples think they're going to be with their master on, on their own for a while, for a little retreat, and lo and behold, there's a very large welcoming committee for them on shore. And what happens is Jesus spends the entire day in ministry healing the sick who are brought to him. And the disciples get, start to get concerned as evening approaches because they're thinking, Hey, there's a lot of people here. We're in the middle of nowhere. We're in a desolate place. And where are all these people going get, to get their food? Now, you, that, that sounds on the surface like responsible leadership, right? And so they, they come up to Jesus, who's obviously so engaged in ministry, and they think they, need to, they think they need to connect some dots for him. And so they come up to him, and they, they kind of act as consultants, and they say, Master, There are too many people here. There's not enough food. The way to care for these people is to send them away. Let them fend for themselves. Now, you know what? I sympathize with that. What the disciples say is so logical. In fact, it's almost caring. You know, if you, keep, if you keep these people occupied, and you, you, it's never going to end, Jesus. Their, their, their problems, their needs are going to be bottomless, and they're going to starve. 
And there's no place around here. Think of all the sacrifices they they made to get here. Wouldn't it be compassionate for you to send them away at this point? I mean, you've, you've done a lot. What's interesting about it is what the, what the disciples are doing is there's a certain detachment in how they're responding to the needs of the people. They're distancing themselves from, the needs, themselves from the needs of the people. Do you see that? They're saying there's a need here. They see the need. That's what's so interesting. They see the need. The people need to eat. But they conclude that when they look around at the environment, they think implicitly about themselves and what they've got. They've only got five loaves and, and uh, two fish. They think, okay, so the only solution here is have the people go away. Have them take their needs somewhere else. Have them fend for themselves. So there's, in other words, the disciples see that the only solution is for there to be distance put between them and Jesus and their needs. And Jesus says something to them so shocking, he does exactly the opposite of what they, what they advise and what they expect. He actually closes the distance between them and the people's needs. And he says this shocking thing in verse 16. They don't need to go away. You, you disciples, give them something to eat. Amazing. Now think about that. We know the way this story is going to end. Ultimately, it's Jesus who's going to provide, right? But notice what Jesus does. He doesn't do an end or the way to his provision for the people is not to do an end around the disciples and their inadequacy to provide for the people so that the disciples are just spectators. No, what he does is he goes through the disciples to the people. He imposes responsibility on them. Do you see that? He obligates them to the people. You give them something to eat. And he enables them to fulfill that promise, doesn't he? But what I want you to see is that what Jesus' solution here is to the people's need is not to do an end around the disciples, even though the need is greater than they can answer, and even though they technically don't have the ability in themselves to answer the need, Jesus imposes an obligation upon them to meet the need. He embeds them in the people's need. Now, friend, have you ever considered that in every sphere where Jesus has placed you, my brothers and sisters, I'm talking about my Christian brothers and sisters now, have you ever considered that, that in every sphere where God has placed you, you're not there by accident, you're there by his design. And I'm talking your family, I'm talking your marriage, I'm talking your neighborhood, who you live next to, who you live around, I'm talking your workplace, Uh, I'm talking about your acquaintances and your networks of friendships, that in every one of those spheres, have you ever considered that Jesus is saying exactly the same thing to you? You give them something to eat. That's why I put you there. Have you considered that? Have you considered that Jesus is actually not interested? It's not his way to do an end around his people to meet the needs of the lost or other, uh, other folks in the world, but that his preferred method for operating is to go through his disciples. 
It's an amazing thing. You know, we are tempted to do exactly what the disciples do, to look at the vastness of the need and to look at our meager resources, and then we're tempted to send the crowds away in our lives. But every one of Jesus' disciples, I think that this episode reminds us, every one of his disciples, uh, Jesus calls into the ministry. The work of the ministry is every Christian's work. The work of the ministry, I say it that way, because I know when you hear the word ministry, you think, hey, people get paid to work in the church. It's not the way the New Testament describes it. The work of the ministry is every Christian's work. It's inseparable from Christian identity. And that work begins inside the church. It's not limited to work inside the church, but ministry begins inside the church. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. Let me show you what I mean. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 10. So it's on page 970. No, I told you the wrong thing. Page uh, 977 in your pew Bible. Now, what, what Paul is describing here, this is, this is a section on spiritual gifts and how the church works, and there's a, a picture that Jesus has, uh, excuse me, that Paul has, uh, that begins with Jesus' ascension to the Father's right hand after his resurrection. His, in other words, because Jesus is triumphant and goes to the Father's right hand, what happens is... And Jesus is vindicated. What happens is, Jesus then, there's like a gracious cascade from Jesus' exaltation that pours down from his throne of, of the spoils, if you will, of his victory that come down through the gifts that he gives to his people in the church for the building up of the body. And the vision is that this gracious cascade of Christ's triumph is going to come down poured out on the people of God, overflowing inside the church, and then overflowing from the church to the world outside the church. And the hallmark of this, kind of the key hinge of this, is in verses 11 through 12. But let's start at verse 10. He who descended, that's Christ, who came in the incarnation, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, and he gave. Now, what does this triumphant Christ do? What are the implications of his victory? I mean, he's gone to heaven. What does he have to do with earth now? He died for his church. He rose again for his church. Now what's he doing for his church? Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. In other words, Jesus is building his church. It's exactly what we're going to see in promise in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. He does it on earth. He does it from heaven. Now notice, why does, what, what's happening with this gracious cascade? Verse 12, why does he do all this? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, this vision of Jesus' triumph, his power, his gifts coming down like a gracious cascade, pouring into the church for what end? That the members of the church would be equipped for the work of ministry. All Christians are called into the ministry. This is Church 101, according to Jesus' plans. Now, let me ask you a question. Why are you here? Honestly, why, why are you here? Are you a gospel tanner? 
or a gospel photosynthesizer? Let me explain. What's a gospel tanner? Well, a gospel tanner is somebody who comes to church to work on their gospel tan. To bask in the light of the gospel, to work on their own gospel tan. And and by the way, right, can't you always tell one of those tans that is made with light bulbs and one of those tans that you get because you're outside in the sun? Sorry, I'm not thinking of anyone in this room. I promise. But you know, a gospel tanner is somebody who comes to church for themselves. Who functionally comes to church for themselves. Who wants to come so, and thinks of themselves as the end user of the good news of the gospel. Just let me bask in the news that God loves me. That I live in a universe where forgiveness is possible for a sinner like me. All I want to do is just put my personal solar panels out. And I want to soak in all that gospel light. I want to work on my gospel tan. And then I want to just get on about my own business. But I'm not here to give. I'm here to get. That's a very dangerous place to be because it's skin deep and superficial and contrary to Jesus' will. Alternatively, are you here as a gospel photosynthesizer? Somebody who has their branches out, who wants to bask in the radiance of Christ and in the radiance of the gospel and does so with a very definite and predetermined purpose to take in the radiance of Christ and understanding that that light of the gospel that comes onto me is meant to be transformed not just into life for me, but harnessed in life and bearing fruit that will add to the life of others. Two radically different ways of thinking about how you deal uh, with the church. Friends, if you're just working on your gospel tan, you don't have anything really to offer other people. And you're not stewarding the radiance of Christ in the way that Jesus means for you to steward it. But if you're a gospel photosynthesizer, you come to church, you're involved in church to be a a feeder on Christ so that you can be a feeder of others with Christ. There's a ministry that you understand you have, that you're a steward of the radiance of Christ, that Jesus isn't going to just let you watch what he does for other people so that you can be encouraged. It's like, wow, I've got a great Jesus. No, that he, the reason he's pouring his light into, into, in your experience is he means for it to go through you to other people. Now, I ask you to examine yourself very carefully. Which one is operating in your life? Are you here in a way that this community can depend upon you? Can depend upon you? What is it that you are doing to build up this body of Jesus Christ? What is it that you are adding to the reach of this church to be able to carry out this call to ministry that Jesus has entrusted to our church. Concretely, 
What is it that you're doing? Are you a dependable member of this community who has come here and stays here and is willing to ride out the ups and downs and to put at the disposal of this community the very gifts that Jesus has entrusted to you, the gifts that he put at your disposal? Or are you just working on your team? Friends, Jesus embedded you in this community so that you would not only feed on him, but so that you would grow in such a way that you would feed others. Don't have any misunderstanding about what Jesus means for you. And that applies to everybody, young and old. Jesus knows what he's doing when he brings the people to his church. He has a plan, friends. He has a plan. He sees the gifts. He knows how he's apportioned the gifts. He knows how he means for the church to operate. And he has, the way, the way that his plan works is starting with this premise, every Christian is called into the work of the ministry. No exceptions. So the call is there. But even more fundamentally, there is the reality of Jesus' compassion. Jesus Christ has a very high view of people. See, Jesus' ministry through us, it begins with his call, which applies to all Christians. You give them something to eat. Let those words just ring in your ears. And may they graciously pursue you. You give them something to eat. Not somebody else. You. And what's going to move your heart is the reality of Jesus' compassion. Because you notice I started in the middle of the sequence in the passage. I didn't start at the beginning. Because what we see is the second aspect of Jesus' ministry through us is a very high view of people that we learn from Jesus. That people matter. And the measure of how much they matter, as both stories show us, is that they are the objects of Jesus' compassion. That's the measure of how much people matter. They're the objects of Jesus' compassion. And that's true for both the crowds and the disciples. Now, yesterday, Maria and I were driving at the the end of the afternoon. We we didn't have any kids home this weekend. It was, like, completely bizarre. What were we supposed to do? Conversations change. Well, we were driving down Orange Camp Road. It was late in the afternoon. Probably some of you saw this. There's a, Maria says, hey, there's a rainbow. There's a rainbow. It was basically like a 90% of a full rainbow. Any of you see that on Orange Camp Road toward the east? And I thought, when I saw that, I thought of a picture I'd seen on the Internet yesterday morning of San Francisco City Hall on Friday night. And they had, maybe, maybe some of you saw this, uh, this picture. It's a gorgeous city hall, by the way. And they had illuminated uh, the sections of the city hall with the colors of the rainbow. And I looked at that rainbow on Orange Camp Road yesterday, and I thought, thank you. Thank you for every opportunity to remember the rainbow, because I know its real meaning. Thank you for every opportunity that you give me, Father, in the media 
and out as I'm, as I'm out walking around, as I'm having conversations with everyone. Every time that rainbow is put before me, I know it's real meaning. Thank you for every opportunity to be reminded of what that rainbow means. You know what it means? Do you know what the rainbow means? Do you know what God says it means? It means two massive things. It means that God's mercy is over this whole earth. God says in Genesis 9, I am never, I'm going to make a covenant with the whole earth, not just Israel, not, not with just Noah, not just with, the, with, with Noah's descendants, but with the whole earth, with the animals, with the people, with the land. I'm never again going to flood the world and destroy it by a flood because of the sin of the world. I am promising my mercy to this whole world, everyone in it. And I will remember my covenant every time I see that rainbow. Let God be true, though every man be a liar. So it means that the rainbow means that God's mercy is over this whole earth. And there's hope for everyone. See, why would God make such a pledge? Because he has a deeper purpose that he is working out in history. And he stabilizes, he promises to stabilize an earth that is in rebellion against him for as long as it takes in order for his purposes, which we know are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, for those purposes to ripen and to come to fruition. So, friends, every time we see the rainbow, let us thank God for these things. And let us not grow cynical, and let us not grow anxious. Let us remember the compassion of God for this whole world. The whole world. Jesus comes on shore. And the text says that he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. My favorite commentator on Matthew's Gospel is a guy who's now passed away named R.T. France, just an amazingly wise Bible scholar. And this is the same verb that Matthew used in chapter 9, verse 36, to describe Jesus' response to a crowd there. And France translates this word, you know, in our English translation, it just says Jesus had compassion on the crowds. But literally, it's a very strong, strong verb. And, and, and the way France translates it, he says, the sense of this in English is that Jesus' heart went out to them. Do you remember that from chapter 9? His heart went out to them. He saw the crowds and his heart went out to them. I love that because what it... What it What it describes, what it captures so well is the way in which compassion is not just a feeling, but compassion is a connection with the needs of people. And this text is saying that what defines Jesus' ministry for us and through us is this amazing, amazing reality of Jesus that his heart went out to the world. 
right? And that's exactly what the rainbow is about. God is promising that his heart is going out to the world. The only reason that you would ever promise mercy to a world that is in rebellion against you is if your heart was going out for that world, if there was compassion. And Jesus is just embodying that very same thing with these crowds. His heart went out to them. Notice he does it. He does it by caring for the people, healing their sick. He does it through the disciples in providing for their hunger. This whole way that that image just captures the reality of the gospel. What is the gospel, my friends? It is the good news that God's heart went out to the world and for the world that was in rebellion against him. Jesus is just living out in microcosm in Matthew 14 what the gospel is the story of in large picture. That God would bind his heart. Think about this. What what the gospel tells us is that the living God bound himself into the Lord Jesus Christ, bound his own heart to the eternal welfare of sinners. (laughs) Does that amaze you? I mean, that is just staggering, that God, who was offended against our sin, by our sin, who was offended, who, who was the one against whom we offended, right? Who is holy, holy, holy. His heart went out to the world. He voluntarily, willingly, bound his own heart and the destiny of of his son to the eternal welfare of sinners. You cannot be cynical about that God. You cannot be cynical about people if you know that God. Honestly, friends, what was it about you that caused the living God to bind his heart to your eternal welfare? How long was the list of reasons other than your own sin that motivated him to do that? So friends, notice that being near to Jesus is going to mean that I'm going to move nearer to others. If I'm not moving toward others, it's probably because I'm not really moving toward Jesus Christ. Non-Christians are not our enemies. Non-Christians are not our opponents. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities and forces that are spiritual and wicked. But sinners are not our enemies. Sinners are not our opponents. Non-Christians are people about whom God, the God of the rainbow, and Jesus Christ, who has compassion on the crowds, about whom they care deeply, upon whom they pour their compassion, we have no place to ever withhold ours from them if God has shown us how he feels about them and toward them. Friends, that needs to absolutely rivet us because none of us feel that way about the world. And one of the reasons we don't feel that way about the world is because we really deep down question whether God feels that way about us. But it's only to the extent that you are amazed at God's compassion for you, that his heart went out for you, not to sinners in general, but to you in particular, that you will begin to be freed up to move toward people. Some of you have non-Christian family members with whom you live, and you're just quite frankly disgusted by them. And you need to repent. 
You're tired of talking to them. Your heart is hard because of their hard heart. And you are so tired of their hypocrisy and their unwillingness to listen to you. Let me tell you, friends, that Jesus Christ's heart is going out toward them. Who are you to hold it back? Okay? But notice something interesting about the Lord's compassion here. It's not just for the crowds. It's also for his disciples. You know, when you are in a place where you're trying to uh, respond to what you understand Jesus' will for you to be in your life, sometimes it can be very lonely. And sometimes you are tempted to believe, and the evil one will want to encourage you to believe this, that, that you've kind of been sent to the outpost, and you're kind of on your own. And you know, when Jesus sends his disciples, you know, notice in the second story, he stays on shore and says, hey, get in that boat and get out of here and go over there. And he knows what's going to happen on that Sea of Galilee. And they probably know it too, because they have a lot of experience on that body of water. And they spend the whole night, right? It's not until the fourth watch that he comes to them. They spend the whole night being beaten by the waves. Beaten by the waves. Battered is, is a way to translate it. Sometimes, it's, sometimes the word that is translated beaten is, uh, to, is, comes across as uh, torture, is rendered torture. And the wind is against them. This is hard. They're, but they're obeying Jesus. They're where they're supposed to be. And they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And it's hard. And it's scary. And what does Jesus do? Does he leave them out there? Does he say, hey, come on, just obey me? He comes to them. He comes to them in the midst of their struggle. Now, friends, we need to remember that in calling us to the ministry, in modeling his compassion uh, for the world to us, Jesus is not going to leave us either to ourselves or by ourselves. He will come. He will come. And for many of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You could go on for hours here about how he has come and come again and again and again. I'm going to be teaching a class at RTS on preaching at the end of July. And you're saying, how did that happen? But you know what the first thing I'm going to tell those men is? The greatest, and it's not, it's not, it is not limited to the preaching ministry at all, but, but it has been the crowning blessing for me, of, of being called to this work. The reality of Jesus is stronger for me now than it ever has been. He comes. You can say what you want. I know what's true. He comes to you. He has compassion on you. His heart goes out to you, not just to those who receive your ministry, but to you in the ministry. So finally, let's look at his provision. Um, his provision for us in our ministry for him. Friends, uh, we should cherish, we learn from both of these uh, passages, both of these episodes, that we should cherish very great uh, expectations of Jesus' provision for his ministry through us. Uh, in both episodes, what we see is this amazing 
uh, provision of Jesus for his disciples. So think first about the feeding of the 5,000, and we'll come back. We kind of touched on it at the beginning of the sermon, but think about, think about how, this began, how this works out. So there's the great need, right, uh, that the disciples see and they're worried about, and so they say to Jesus, hey, the way to solve this problem, Lord, just, just take it from us. I mean, there's, there's 12 of us. We've kind of pooled our wisdom together. Uh, the, the way to respond to this is send the people away, and Jesus comes back with this shock. You give them something to eat. Oh, my goodness. And the very next thing that they do is in, is, is in uh, let's see, what verse is it? Is it 15? Excuse me. No, verse 17. So now, now he says, I, I think the way this unfolds is he says, you give them something to eat. And, and they probably look at each other like, what do we have to give them to eat? So they respond, verse 17, well, all, all we've got is five loaves and two fish. That's all we got. And you notice what, notice what Jesus does is he says, bring them here to me. In other words, what the disciples, what, the sequence of events is that Jesus said, here's the need. And he wants them to feel the gap. He wants them to see the gap between the need and what they've got. He wants them to feel their not-enoughness. He wants them to see it. He wants them to be overwhelmed by it. And then what he says is, hey, bring your not-enoughness to me. Acknowledge it and entrust it to me. Confess both the clarity of my command to you, my call to you, and your inability in yourself to meet it. Bring it here to me. Acknowledge it and trust it to me. Don't walk away. Don't send the people away. Bring your inadequacy to me, and I will, I will answer it. And once they and notice, this is so amazing. Once they place it in his hands, what happens? He gives it right back into theirs. Do you see that? So it is going to be they who give the people something to eat, but not by their bypassing Jesus. Not by them saying, hey, we've got enough. Do you notice there are 12 baskets left over at the end? And they're left over at the end, not the beginning. Oh, that is so important. Why 12 baskets? I don't think, there is so, when you read the commentaries on this, there's so much crazy gymnastics. Oh, it's about the tribes of Israel. Blah, 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 blah. This is not hard. It's 12 baskets because there are 12 disciples there. One for each. What Jesus is doing is he wants every single one of those disciples to have just burned into their memory the fact that they started with nothing. They put it in Jesus' hands. And what happened is there was more than enough. And every future ministry setting that they enter, they're going to have this memory, or they ought to, of Jesus' sufficiency, super-sufficiency, abundant sufficiency for them. They each have a basket. But they have it at the end. Not at the beginning. Jesus doesn't say, work from your stockpile. He says, trust me to provide for mine. See, it's all about putting them into Jesus' hands. It's all about this relationship, isn't it? The provision comes through this relationship, through this trusting of Christ. 
Their responsibility is not the size of their ability. Jesus doesn't proportion their responsibility to the size of their ability. Jesus doesn't proportion your responsibility, my friends, to the size of your ability. We are all responsible for things that are impossible for us. Did you absorb that or do I need to say it again? (laughs) I'm going to say it again. We are all responsible for things that are impossible for us. Duh. All ministry is miraculous. All ministry is uh, utterly dependent upon only proceeds from and succeeds by supernatural power, which by definition we do not possess, but Jesus does. And this is exactly the point that John Owen is making in the reflection quote that's back again this week, that Jesus doesn't proportion our duties to our abilities. He doesn't measure our, his commands to us to our resources, but to his. And he calls us to trust him just as he trusts just as he calls the disciples to trust him he provides his abundance for our inadequacy but you know friends you've got to be in relationship with this Christ for that to be anything more than a theory to you and that's what i love so much about the second Uh, episode with Jesus walking on the water and what we see of his provision there because there's no crowd there right it's just the disciples and they're in the storm and they're being beaten and the wave is the the, excuse me they're being beaten by the waves and the wind is against them and of course like we thought about last week they're I'm sure they're having flashbacks about the last time they were in a boat on that same body of water but Jesus was with them And now they look around, the same conditions, same danger, they're frightened, but Jesus isn't even in the boat taking a nap, so he's nowhere where they can even wake him up. What do you want in that moment more than anything else? What do you want? What do you need? You need Jesus' presence. You need him. You want him so what does he show the disciples? They're in the midst of that storm. They're, they've been confronted all night. He doesn't just come in like a helicopter, lift them out. He lets them struggle for a long time. But he comes. He does come. He knows where to find them. He finds them. And this time he provides for them, not by his abundance, but by his presence. And I think that is exactly what's going on with Peter When Peter says, Lord, if it's you, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. See, I don't think Peter's motivation is, empower me to do a miracle. I don't think he wants to be a water-walking wizard. I don't think that's what he's asking. What he's saying is, hey, I'm here. You're there. I want you. If you're not going to come here, then enable me to go to you. I want your presence. I want you. Whatever else happens in this storm, whether I'm in the boat or not in the boat, I want to get as close to you as possible. You've provided your presence. Let me bask in that presence. Let me stay close to you. And so the text says that he did come to Jesus. Often when that text is painted or you see it depicted, there's a big gap, isn't there? between Peter and Jesus. That's how I've always seen it depicted, that Peter just barely gets out of the boat and then he starts to sink. That's not what the text says. 
He came to Jesus. And then he looked around. And then he sang. This is, this is Jesus' pledge to us, friends. Lo, I am with you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, of course, if all you want to do is be a wizard, you don't care about the presence of Jesus. You just want his abundance. But then you're no different from Simon Magician, Simon the Magician in Acts 8. You just want power, which probably means you're not a Christian. So friends, want Jesus above all else. He is the real treasure. Now, why should you trust him to provide? (laughs) Why should you trust him? I mean, these are great promises. Why should you trust him? How can you know? How can you know that in the spheres to which Jesus has called you, is calling you, or will call you to go to minister in his name, how can you trust him? How can we trust him to do for us what we've witnessed him doing in these two episodes for the 12? Well, I think we can and should trust him because of what, how these episodes function. They are windows, my friends. Both of these episodes anticipate his greatest provision for us. Jesus Christ sent his heart out. Think think about it, friends. If you're a Christian this morning, Jesus Christ's heart went out for you. He held nothing back. Think about the lengths that he went to for you. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you were still helpless, when the wrath of God abided on you, what did he do? He gave himself for you. And friends, Think about the feeding of the 5,000, what Jesus does in that episode. It's an amazing thing. And think about what he did in the storm. Another amazing thing came to his disciples. And both of these episodes lead us to the cross. Let me explain what I mean. You know what the cross is? The cross is the most desolate place, the crucifixion of the Son of God, was the most desolate place in the entire universe. That was the place where the reality of hell broke through the surface of the earth and was laid bare before the eyes of the whole world. It was the place of greatest desolation. See, Jesus, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus goes to a desolate place with his disciples. He goes with them, but at the cross, friends, Jesus went by himself to the most desolate place in all the universe. He went there by himself and he transformed. And what what he did at that most desolate place is he endured the ultimate implications of all of our sin, right? All the sins of his people and the implications of the sins of Jesus' people were desolation before God. The cross teaches us that the path of sin 
leads to desolation, the ultimate desolation. And Jesus went to that place by himself, not with his disciples, but for his disciples, and in his own body endured the desolation that our sins deserved. And what did he do in that most desolate place? He transformed it in the same way that he transformed the bread, and the meager bread and the meager fish. He transformed that place of greatest desolation into the place of greatest abundance in the universe. The cross is now not a desolate place, my friends. It is the most abundant place. Jesus Christ transformed his desolation into a hall of feasting for his people, a hall of feasting that is still feeding the world. And Jesus, in Jesus' hands, the cross is being multiplied over and over and over again through the centuries, through the nations, through every strata of society, through every language group, through every people group. Jesus Christ is multiplying what he has provided for the world. That's how you know he's going to provide for you. He took the most desolate place And he turned it into the most abundant place. So now, friends, think of it. He took, think about what the cross means for you as a Christian. He took the judgment of God. So now, because of what Jesus did at Calvary, now the judgment of God against our sin, which we rightly feared, is now something that we celebrate because it has been satisfied. We're not afraid of the judgment of God because we know that since Jesus went to that place of desolation, we have nothing but abundance from God on the basis of that just and full verdict. Hallelujah. But he didn't just go to the most desolate place. He also went into the fiercest storm for us. See, in the second story, Jesus sends his disciples into that storm by themselves and then comes to them in it. But at the cross, think about what Jesus did. He he didn't send his disciples into that storm. He went in that storm by himself for his disciples. And he bore the wrath of his Father against all the sins of his people. He He was battered by that wrath. He was beaten. The wrath of his Father was against him For as long as the disciples were in that boat, he was battered and bruised by the wrath of his father. Why did he do that? He did that for his people. And because he has done that, do you see what's happened? Jesus has turned the fiercest storm into the safest haven in the world. That is the place of safety. It is the safe harbor it is a, it's an impregnable fortress that if you will receive it in repentance and faith, if you'll just humble yourself to acknowledge the truth about your identity as a sinner and Jesus' great identity as the great Savior of sinners, you'll be made safe from the fiercest of storms. You have a safe harbor that nothing can penetrate, that nothing can uh, defraud you of. Friends, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, Jesus is pointing you to that safe haven and to that place of abundance this morning.
If you're already his, the way you know that he's going to provide for you is because of how he has already provided for you. And if you're not yet a Christian, you need to know because of that hall of feasting, that banquet of God's grace and his glory, because of that, that is extended to you this morning because of that safe harbor this morning, that Jesus is still ready to receive you this morning, that if you call out like Peter did, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. He will not fail to take hold of you. I pray that you will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your provision for us. Thank you for turning the place of great desolation and the place of great abundance for us that we as sinners can come and see your love in abundance, not a trickle, but a flood and your great faithfulness to us and even your justice and righteousness now have become this feast for us because we know that in Christ they've been answered in full and so they are not threatening to us, they are lovely to us. We can say, holy, 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 from hearts that are full because we know that Jesus was willing to be declared the unholy, the unholy, the unholy in our place. And we pray that he would now have sway over every one of our hearts. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stand as we-